Now, in the Beatitudes, what Jesus does, he states up front, before he gets into the body of his sermon, he states up front what the characteristics of the people in the kingdom are all about. Now, he doesn't say, with the Beatitudes, he doesn't say, now you really need to work hard at being poor in spirit. You really need to work hard at mourning and being meek. You really, really have to put all your energy in being hungry and merciful and being pure, and you have to give it all your strength to be a peacemaker and to be persecuted. And so Jesus doesn't say that. He says, instead, if you're part of the kingdom of heaven, you'll know it by these character traits of the Beatitudes. And so we went through all of those in the very beginning of our series, and today we begin with the next section. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Let me read to you our text today. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is God's word for us today. In this passage, Jesus is making commentary of, on kingdom people, and he's also making commentary very subtly about the state of the world. So first, what we're going to do today is we'll take a look and just make commentary of our own on the state of the world, and then we'll take a look at what Jesus says about people in this upside-down kingdom. So let's start with the state of our world. Now, the first point I, I, I could make is this. Many believe, many believe in the inevitability of human progress. They believe in this, that humans are going to just progress and get better and better. Since 1650, up into the 1900s and until now, through what was known as the Enlightenment, generally there was a belief, a strong belief, in that humans were going to progress, that, that they were going to reach perfection, and it was inevitable that that's the way it was going to be. And the belief that things were going to get better and better and better in our world, and, and I think it's so subtle today, but I really believe that even us here today, those who are the convinced, those who are in the kingdom, have this sort of subtle pressure to believe that our world is getting better and it's getting better and it's getting better. H.G. Wells, who's an of course, a very famous scientific author. He wrote probably one of his greatest works was The War of the Worlds, right? He, he wrote this um, in an essay called A Short History of the World. This is what he says. This was before World War II. He writes this. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? See, H.G. Wells believed this. He was thinking, it's, it's, it's glorious, it's going to get even better. 
And then World War II happened. And all of the trauma and the tragedy and the atrocities of World War II took place. And then he writes this in another essay entitled, A Mind at the End of Its Tether. He writes, The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. There's a real reality check there for H.G. Wells. Many believe in this inevitability of human progress. The second point that we can make here in this state of our world is we live in an era of cynicism. And I think you know this. I think you've experienced this. Maybe you are this, right? All of this has played out into postmodernism, and now we're in some philosophers and social scientists are calling this not postmodernism, but metamodernism. I don't know what that means, but I think it's kind of cool. So, uh, but it's in this era of cynicism. And we find cynics and cynicism with politics and government, don't we? A new presidential election. People are jumping into the race, and we watch these announcements, and we just roll our eyes, and we go, oh, brother, right? Cynics all around. And, and, and there's scandals in politics and in government and lack of integrity and competitive, competitiveness amongst major parties. And then there's... There's cynicism amongst clergy. I don't know if you know this. I'm particularly sensitive to this. Um, with clergy, of course, we've been disappointed with scandals and with immorality and with cover-ups. And, and when I'm in the community and I'm um, out in the community and talking with people and you know, people find out what I do for a living, and it's very interesting because we'll talk a little bit about this and they'll say, where's your church located? And, you know, all of this sort of a thing. And then inevitably, in, inevitably a question comes up. They look at me and they say, so you make your living out of organized religion, do you? And there's this cynicism out there of clergy. What's interesting, I, I think, is is um, in my work with the police department here in Torrance as, the, as a, one of the chaplains, the lead chaplain of the department. For 23 years I, I've been doing this, and it's just kind of quiet work, and, and we're, we're there helping officers and citizens. And when people find out about that work, then suddenly I become highly esteemed for my work with the police department. And, and, I've, and I figured out I know why. Because I'm a volunteer. And I don't get money for that. Well, we have cynicism over doctors and with business. And, you know, it seems like in this era of cynicism, we don't trust anyone, do we? And, and we're angry about it. And so it just, it just starts to blossom and build. And someone once said, everyone in this place is a crook except me and you. And sometimes I wonder about you. So what happened to us, anyways? I mean, what, really, what happened to the cynics? What happened to H.G. Wells? Several hundred years ago, there was a Christian belief, a, a Christian vision, whether it be Catholic or Protestant or, or, or Orthodox, 
There is a Christian vision that the world was, is a difficult place with problems. But there is an authoritative word, the Bible. There is this vision that there is this supernatural God that lives in this realm of the kingdom of God. And people through faith conversion would find the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God would break into their personal world. And their life would just change forever. That was the belief several hundred years ago that still carries on today in just pockets and remnants of people like here at Nova Community Church. There was this age called the Enlightenment or the Age of Enlightenment. And human beings can, the the belief was that human beings can solve their problems on their own. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but this was an intellectual movement in about the 17th century And then it spread throughout the world. And the Enlightenment focused on the power and the goodness of human rationality. Some of the doctrines of the Enlightenment are that reason is the most significant and positive capacity of a human. And that reason enables one to break free from primitive and dogmatic and superstitious and religious beliefs. They said that philosophical and scientific progress can lead humanity as a whole to a state of earthly perfection. This was the Enlightenment in the 17th century. They carried out all through the world. They said beliefs of any sort should be accepted only on the basis of reason and not on traditional or priestly authority. So what was the result of this optimism of the Age of Enlightenment? Well, I think... Like H.G. Wells, there is a lot of disappointed pessimism out there. So where are we at? What is the state of our world? The third point I can make here about biblical Christianity is this. Biblical Christianity is neither superficial optimism. It's neither. Christianity is neither superficial optimism nor cynical pessimism. It's, it's, It's neither. But I think a lot of times... We're tempted to fall in one side or the other, aren't we? We like a certain national church pastor, someone that's on the radio or TV, because he's so positive. And that's the Christian message, isn't it? It's optimism. And then there's others who are more doomsday, right? And things aren't getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. And it's going to happen one day. And, and Christians and people, they, 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 they go from one side to the other. This optimism to this pessimism. But Christianity doesn't look at the ideal like optimists do. And Christianity doesn't look at the real like pessimists do. Biblical Christianity looks at Jesus Christ. Because He is, Jesus is the ideal that has become real. That's what it is. It's neither optimism nor pessimism. Jesus is the ideal that's broken into the real of our real world. And when we trust in Jesus and we give him control of our life, the steering wheel of our lives, this ideal power breaks into our real world and it changes us. It changes us forever. And then Jesus tells us that he gives us this ideal power. He gives us this ideal power so that we can be change agents 
to our decaying world. And that's where we find ourselves in the text today. It's about salt and it's about light, being salt and light in the world. Now, people are either optimists or pessimists, I think. I think you see them out there. Or they're both because, well, it depends on the mood of the day or, or, or it depends on the day, I think. Christians, though, are neither optimists nor pessimists. We are those who trust in Jesus. So being salt and light in the world, the first thing we can learn from our text is, is this. Number one is the world is decaying and it's falling apart. Our world is decaying it's falling apart. Jesus talks about salt. He talks about light. When Jesus talks about salt, in Near Eastern times, many of you know this, he's talking about salt being a preservative. There was no refrigeration in those times, no deep freezers, no ice chests, or no ice, I, I guess in many ways. And so, so you salted meat like crazy so that it prevents the meat from going bad. And then light. Light is not like the lights that we have here in this building that light up this place. It, it was a wick and a cup of oil. And if you've ever been in total darkness, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I, I have a, a, a couple of times. One time I was uh, driving with my son, and we were driving from the eastern Sierras after a fishing trip, and we were just kind of racing back home. It was late at night. We needed to get here for Sunday morning worship, and we're driving along, and there was no cars around. Highway 395 on the eastern side of the Sierras, and there was no moon out. And so I just thought I'd, I thought it'd be interesting. And so as we're driving, no cars, no moon, it was just so dark, I flipped, turned off the headlights. And, and, and it was just total darkness. And, and the experience was so interesting. There, it, was, I, I, it was almost like vertigo. I, I really couldn't even, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, if you've ever experienced it, it's like it's, it's, there's a disorientation. There's almost even a nausea with total darkness that happens. Then I quickly turn on the lights back and back on again. <laughs> Jesus is saying that human beings, if left to themselves, it's inevitable that they go to disorder and they go to disconnection or disorientation or decay or disintegration. Simply put, let me just say it this way, just bottom shelf for you guys to really get this, things fall apart. It's as simple as that. Everything left to itself falls apart. Physically, you know it. I mean, everything from a flower to a rock, it falls apart, right? The flower dies sooner than the rock falls apart, right? And human beings are somewhere between the flower and the rock, right? That's what happens in our world. I think we all understand that. It takes a tremendous amount of work for our bodies, for us to slow down the decay of our bodies, it, doesn't it? We have to eat right. We have to exercise. We have to do all these things and so that we'll, we could slow down that progress that we're falling apart. Relationships are the same way, aren't they? Uh, friendships, if you have friends, you know if you want that friendship to grow and to sustain, you have to connect. You have to you cultivate that friendship. Romance is the same way. If you've ever been romantically involved with someone, you just can't have romance and just think, it's growing. I'm not doing anything to it at all, and it's growing. Well, maybe in the first 30 days, maybe. <laughs> right? 
for, for me, I, I had this idea in my mind that if and when I met that one, that special person in my life that I would be married to and, and we would live all the rest of our earthly lives together, that once I, if I just found that person, everything would be better and things would grow and that marriage, as we grow old, is just going to get... It, it doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't. When I talk to married couples or pre, pre-married couples and we sit down and have premarital counseling and we talk, and one of the first things I say to them is, your marriage will be only as good as you want it to be. If you do nothing to your relationship, then your marriage will eventually become nothing. But if you cultivate it and you work at it, and, and, you, and you learn some of the tools that we're going to be learning over the next few weeks in pre-marriage counseling. If you practice those things, that marriage has a chance to grow. But left on its own, relationships will fall apart. Our physical bodies, everything physical disintegrates. And it, 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 you can choose almost anything. Vocations will do the same thing. Everything just falls apart. And the principle we're talking about here, and you can ask any physicist, is that the world is running down. It's the second law of thermodynamics that eventually the sun's going to burn out, eventually the stars are going to go out, the earth is going to dry up and blow away one day. And this is what Jesus is saying here in this text. Things are decaying and they're falling apart. And the world needs salt and light. In the world, if the world is all there is, If the earth is all there is, then you know what? There is no hope because all of it's falling apart. Now, all people agree with this. Whatever whatever belief system you have, all people agree that the world is winding down. The problem is a lot of us don't play this out to the very end. What happens to you in the end is the question that needs to be asked. If we all believe this, that things are running out, our bodies are falling apart, the earth is, is drying up and it's going to blow away, what happens to you in the end? See, whatever the advances in medical technology there are, no matter if we're winning the war on terror, no matter if crime rates improve in our city from year to year, it still does not change the death rate, does it? What is the death rate? One per person, right? You can't change that at all. However, Jesus says there is salt and there's light, and it's there for a reason. So the first thing we can say is this. The world is decaying and falling apart. The second thing we can say in this text is there is a salt and a light from outside the world that can save it. There is a salt and a light from outside the world that can save it. Now, the salt and the light is Jesus Christ himself. He doesn't mention himself in this passage being salt and light. Or does he? Take a look at verses 14 and 15 in our text. It says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Jesus doesn't say here that we're like sun. You know, we're, we're, we have our own source of light. Or we're like stars. He says that we're like the light of a lamp. That's a big difference there. A lamp cannot produce its, its own light. A lamp only holds light when it's been lit. So Jesus is implying 
where he states directly elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus is the light of the world, and you, be, you become the light of the world only as you are lit by him. Take a look at John chapter 1 and John chapter 8. John chapter 1 verse 4, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus speaks of himself. He, he spoke again to the people, it says, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we're, we're understanding this clear now. Your light comes from someone else. You don't have this light just inherent in you. You are a lamp. You are not the sun. You are lit by someone else. And Jesus is called the light of the world. And then he calls himself the light of the world. And so when Jesus says, I'm the light, he's saying, first thing he's saying is, I'm the truth. The truth will always illuminate. It makes things conspicuous. He says, not only I'm the light, I'm the truth, he says, I'm good. I, there's no evil I, in me. He says, I can't cheat, I can't, I can't lie, um, I cannot do evil. So Jesus is saying, I'm the light. He's saying, I'm, I'm the truth, I'm good, and I'll guide you to reality. That's what Jesus is saying by saying, I'm the light. Light is the way we see everything else. You ever, I, I did this the other day, I have, um, I have uh, navy blue socks and I have black socks. And I have a room that's, with the blinds uh, closed, it's dimly lit. So I'm sitting in this chair and I open up my sock drawer and, I, and I've got to find black socks because I'm wearing black pants and I got black shoes. I'm, I'm a fashionista in that way, right? I, and so I pull out, and, I, and I'm thinking, uh, this is it. And so I start to put one on, and I stop, and I think, wait a minute now, right? You already know where this is going. So I flip on the light, and I realize I'm putting navy blue socks on. That's not going to work, right? A good light will reveal the true colors. Jesus says, I'm light, I'm truth, I'm good, I'm going to guide you to reality. He says, and I'm the way. He's showing us the way that's the truth and goodness and in reality. In fact, in John 14, 6, a very familiar verse, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'll say it this way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying, I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not a wise pro- just a wise prophet. I, I'm not just pointing you to the light. I am light. I'm God, is, is what Jesus is saying. And either you agree and you, or, or, or you don't agree. And if you don't agree, then well, you, you've got something to deal with here. You see, he cannot be equally valid. He can't be light and not be light at the same time. He can't be God and on all other paths are okay too. If you say that you have a particular belief that all religions are equally valid, if that's what you think, then you're saying that Jesus is a liar and he's obviously crazy. Jesus Christ is either the light of the world or he is darkness. 
And by his claim, it puts you in a position to say, I have to choose. Jesus is the light. It's the only way that you're going to see reality. And Jesus is the salt. He holds the world together. And if Jesus is our only hope in the world, if he is, physically and relationally and socially, then we're no longer, if he's the only hope in the world, we're no longer optimists or pessimists. We are realistic about disintegration, that our world is winding down, and our world is decaying, and that we can see what happens when the ideal of Jesus breaks in to the real of the world. The text is telling us that, number one, the world is decaying and falling apart. It's saying there is a salt and a light from the outside the world that can save it. And the last thing the text tells us is this. Followers of Jesus become salt and light. Followers of Jesus become salt and light. Verse 16 in our text, Matthew chapter 5. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The moment we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, His light, His, His light, His truth, His goodness, His reality, it comes into our life. And His salt, the the Decay preventative comes into our life the moment we trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when Jesus says that you are light and you are salt, Jesus is saying this is what the Christian life is like. So look at your notes here. The first thing he says is salt and light means we expose decay and darkness. Salt and light means that we expose decay and darkness. When your life comes in contact with others, the beauty and goodness of your life that's reflected of Jesus illuminates. And so I, I, I really want you to get this. Your mere presence, your, your, just your presence itself reveals, it could reveal dishonesty in the workplace. Just by you being there because you're salt and light, just your mere presence could could expose dishonesty in the workplace or gossip among friends. Just by you being in part of that friend group, it could expose that. It, you're, just by being salt and light, it can expose racism in the neighborhood or lack of ethics in an organizational culture or corruption in politics. I, I had a very interesting thing happen to me about 10 years ago. There was a, in, in the city of Torrance, there was a, a mayoral and city council uh, um, election, and there was uh, people vying to be ma- mayor and city council members and all this. And then there was this claim of uh, political uh, corruption, you know, in, in the campaign. Someone wasn't doing something right with their money, or they were telling lies. And it's got to get you know ugly on a local politics level. Many of you don't care, but but it's uh, uh, it was just happening out there. And, and because I, I'm, I'm working with a lot of city government leaders and things, I, I got kind of a, a part of that. So one of the mayor candidates said, if I get elected mayor, I am going to uh, appoint a blue ribbon committee on ethics. And guess what? He got elected mayor. And then as I'm kind of wandering around the city, not wandering, but, you know, work, working with, with people in the city, I hear, hey, um, Dean, they're going to appoint you to that committee. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Not that I'm uh, unethical, but I, I, I just, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be another part of a committee. 
I, 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 it just, that doesn't interest me. I'm not a lawyer type. I'm not a, you know, we're, we're, our task is to write a code of ethics for the city of Torrance. I, I don't want to do that. It just, that's my own desire. And so a couple days later, the mayor calls me and says, hey, Dean, I really want you to be on this committee. I said, hey, mayor, um, okay, I'm going to pray about it. I don't do anything without praying. He says, that's fine. Call me tomorrow. I said, all right. So I've talked to Janet. Janet says, yeah, do that. You got to do that. He's that mayor's asking to do that. You need to be there. And um, so, you know, prayer really didn't happen much after that. <laughs> she, she, yeah. That was the voice of God. In, in, in. Isn't that true? Men, isn't that true? Uh, right? Anyway, so I called the mayor. I said, okay, I'll be on the committee. So we meet, and all of these people are in there, and they're all excited about being there. And I'm the one that's not really excited about being there, you know. And we're breaking the working groups, and we're, we make this code of ethics, and and I'm kind of bored, and I'm there, and I'm, and I'm a part of this, and, um, and I really don't think I'm doing much for this group. And then the mayor, I see him at an event that we're, we're both speaking at, and he says, hey, Dean, thanks so much for being a part of that Blue Ribbon Committee. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, I just don't think I'm doing much there. And he says, oh, he said, people are telling me that you're making a huge difference there. Honest to God, I, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm really, I, I'm almost avoiding the work. There. Okay, so I'm not tooting my horn here, but what I'm saying is this. Could it be possible that God's light and salt within me, just my mere presence there, is making a difference among others who really want to work hard at doing this? Could it be? How about you? How about you? Your mere presence in your group, in your book club, in your um, team at work, in your classroom, on, in, in your sports team, could it be that just your mere presence in your neighborhood, salt and light, just by being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying here. I'm not going to give you four things to say and do. I'm saying show up. Second thing we can say here is this. Salt and light means we bring joy to people. Salt is not just a preservative. It's the original seasoning. It brings out the taste in things. It, what it means to be salt and light is that you're not a wet blanket that's going to say, hey, you're gossiping. I see unethical behavior. It's not that. Because at the same time, all of these things get revealed because of your mere presence. You could bring joy and security and people could be heard in their life and the, in, 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 in acknowledged, in their presence is acknowledged. A Christian doesn't just show up and say, what can I get out of this? A Christian shows up and says, how can I bring out the best in others? In, the, in this business, in this organization, in this classroom, in this neighborhood, in this friendship. What can I do to bring out the best? I, I love when you, when you look at verse 16, just, just real quick. It says, um, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds. That, that word good, there's two words in the Greek language for, for that word 
good that's translated in English. The first one is agatos, which means quality or perfection. That's that good there. But really, it's the other Greek word that's used here. It's not good quality. The other Greek word is kalos, which means beautiful. And so what Jesus is saying here is that they may see your good, beautiful deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Third point we can make here, and we'll close with this. Salt and light means that we work together. Salt and light means that we work together. This is, this is uh, new for me as I, as I look at this. Jesus does talk to us as individuals. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But then check out what he says. He says, a city, right? The collective lights of a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It, it's this togetherness. And if you think about salt, how many of you uh, uh, work with recipes and, and it, it requires salt? Never in a recipe when that, that requires salt, it says, just one grain. Right? I've never read that anywhere. Because one grain won't really make a difference there. In taste, it says uh, a, a pinch, a, a, a teaspoon, a tablespoon of salt. And so as I think about this for us at Nova Community Church, our mission, our ministry, our movement of Nova is not built on one human being. It's built collectively. We are lights together, a city together. You think about what happened on Easter, and if you were here last week, it was glorious. But all of that doesn't take place based around one, or even two, or even three, or even just the staff of four or five. It's Easter setup with a whole team that was here early in the morning setting up tables and chairs and, and tablecloths and canopies. And then it was all of your food that collectively made that incredible, delicious, abundant lunch that we serve to hundreds of people. And then it was a teardown that went so quickly that we were just astonished. I went back out after carrying some things in, and there was nothing else to bring in. We were fighting for who was going to carry that table in. There were so many. And then, of course, it's a worship team, not one singer. It's the, it's the choir, a collective a group of voices that brings up beautiful music. It's children's ministry teams. It just goes on and on and on. It's not one grain of salt. It's one, not one little light. It's a city. It's a collective. The church is a collective. It's a new humanity. It's a community. It's a city. It's a healthy, functional family. That's what we are. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, and you don't do it by yourself. We are together. The bride of Christ. The, the beloved one of Jesus Christ who gave his life for each and every one. So I have questions here, just two real quick. First question is, because you are the light of the world, here's the question, have you ever been lit? Some of you, perhaps you say, that sounds good, Dean. I would love to be a light. I would love to make a difference, but you've never been You've never trusted in Jesus because when you do that, he lights you. He puts his light in you. You are not the sun. You are a lamp. A, a light has been brought to you. Will you receive that light? Second question, you are the salt of the earth. Are you connected with other grains of salt here? Are you part of 
a small group, a Nova family group somehow. Two things I want to leave you with. and First is, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you've never professed your faith through baptism, it's time. It's time. I'll be at the back door in just a few minutes. Just, just tell me it's time to get baptized for me. We're going to have a baptism on the 26th of April. That's a couple weeks away. And so say, I want to get baptized. The, the second thing is, if you've never professed your desire to be part of Nova Community Church, to be with other grains of salt, to be a, a collective group of like a city on a hill, if you want to be a, a part of this church family, it's time. For many of you, it's time. And so I'll be at the back door for that too, and you can say to me, I want to be a member of the church, and, uh, and we'll work those things out. For now, let's all stand for the benediction.